0: in collaborating with these communities and asking questions and, and, and having established relationships, I think we've really been able to help them transform their data landscape into something that's a little bit more preventative also as, as instead of just being like reactive, like how, how can you prevent illegal fishing uh, from happening in the first place as opposed to only responding to it after it happens. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of our podcast. You just heard conservation social scientist, Dr. Meredith Gore, touch on the value of data and community building to better understand the global phenomenon of nature crime. Esri's David Gadsden investigates the unprecedented scope of poaching and resource theft today, and their sometimes surprising impact on ecosystems and human communities.
1: Hello, Dr. Meredith Gore, and welcome to the Esri and the Science of Work podcast. Thank you. Meredith, you're a conservation social scientist at the University of Maryland Department of Geographical Sciences. Maybe we could begin by you helping us understand the focus of your work as a conservation-oriented social scientist.
0: Sure, so I study human behavior and uh, human relationships with the environment. So my research is very applied. And so I do a lot of field work and I wind up interacting with a lot of different groups of people communities uh, all around the world. I like to say that humans are my species and I focus mostly on nature crime or conservation crime. So illegal use of natural resources like illegal fishing, illegal mining, illegal logging, wildlife trafficking. And so the idea is to really try to bring different disciplines to the table to think about these issues and, and come up with evidence that can support action, right? action by the people on the ground, whether they're local communities or conservation organizations or federal agencies or whatnot.
1: Meredith, maybe you could help us get a better idea of the scope of these types of illegal activities against nature.
0: The, the scope and scale of conservation crime or, or nature crime today is, it's it's ubiquitous. It's something that is in every country in the world, in every ecosystem in the world, every. Uh, Social group. Uh, it, It looks different in different places, but it ranges from illegally logging certain species of trees, illegal fishing, water pollution, air pollution. Sometimes these activities are against a law, like a national law or an international law. And then sometimes they can just be really harmful, right? They can prevent local people from engaging in certain rituals. The, the natural resources aren't available for them to celebrate their wedding in a traditional way. The, the scope and scale of, of nature crime today is, I think it's unprecedented. It's probably worthwhile, it is worthwhile mentioning that it's it also is, is online. We communicate online, we can uh, exchange money online. and and we have access to networks and people that we've never had access to before. Um, So the scope and scale of nature crime, it's truly a global um, issue. And so from my perspective as a scientist, I'm kind of like, we need all hands on deck, right? This is a a global problem, global issues. We need a global community of scientists and sciences to to try to build more evidence to uh, support, you know, effective decision-making, effective action.
1: That's, um, that's quite overwhelming. I mean, many of us in the conservation field um, have been, you know, focused on sort of the iconic poaching crisis, you know, rhino horns and and elephants being decimated. But you're talking about a a much broader array of products that are being derived from nature.
0: Yeah, so um, there's plant crime, there's illegal trade in cactuses, in orchids. Um, there's illegal trade in sand and minerals like cobalt there's uh you know there's there's vultures there's hummingbirds so pretty much every place that humans live they will use natural resources and some of the challenges associated with global environmental change mean that sometimes some people use these natural resources illegally we can use them legally in many many contexts it's just that more and more we're thinking about the illegal side of things.
1: So how do you even begin to get an understanding of these issues and all of these geographies around the world? What's your process for engaging with partners and communities and how do you approach your work?
0: My work is inherently interdisciplinary. And so it requires thinking about a particular issue, a particular context in a particular geography Um, from many different perspectives so i like to think about we have this this landscape of data the 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 data landscape is not enough to help local people resolve the problem and so we need to kind of broaden the data landscape we need to have a clearer picture and so the way that i try to approach that is bringing different sciences to the table so i do a lot of work with criminology uh, so thinking about how people engage in crime, uh, crime control, uh, race, class, ethnicity, and then also conservation biology, right? So certain animals are at disproportionate risk than others. Certain ecosystems are at dif- disproportionate risk than others. And then there's there's this idea of decision making um, under uncertainty, or you know, how do you communicate risks? How do you manage risks accordingly? So my research inherently involves some criminology, some conservation, and some risk and decision making. So in my lab, we call this conservation criminology. Uh, others may call it interdisciplinary science. And so, you know, the idea is we're trying to change the data landscape. We're trying to understand the problem in a different and maybe more comprehensive way. If we understand the problem better, then maybe we understand solutions better. And maybe we also then understand different solution implementers, like who could we bring to the table that isn't at the table that could help resolve some of these issues? And so so nature crime, why should I care about this? And and so when I'm asked that question about well, why do you even care, why do you even care about nature crime and why are you even studying it? There's violence, right? There's violence against people and animals. There are educational investments, there's health investments, there's Infrastructure investments that we make with our tax dollars or we donate. And these investments aren't as good as they could be when people break rules, then they break the law. There are laws that are made weaker by illegal activity. Uh, You have tax revenue that's removed from the the legal system. And then there's also like diseases and invasive species that have new ways of spreading. So you have invasive species that are being moved by um, an illegal, you know, by by a wildlife trafficker, uh, you know, like a hitchhiker, (laughs) a hitchhiking invasive species. And then you have diseases, right? Zoonotic diseases, diseases of animals that can can impact people. And so these are just a few of the reasons why I see a lot of different people care about nature crime. And so Bringing this idea about like what's happening in that particular landscape, how can the data be improved so that we can improve decision-making, that's kind of what gets me up in the morning as a scientist.
1: What are the levels of geography involved? These species come from some place, they're sold somewhere else. Give us an example of an iconic planter animal that's, that's being uh, illegally uh, trafficked in this manner and where it's coming from, where it's going, and then who's involved?
0: yeah so I tend to think of like the geographies of a supply chain right So I think about like there's some sort of source, there's a transit and then there's a destination and then a poacher takes this 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 tortoise, which is one of the species that I conduct work on with regards to to, to wildlife trafficking, and removes it from the from from the source. And then there's like all these spaces between and so this might be somebody's house, there might be multiple houses, there might be a warehouse, Um, it could be a refrigerator, it could be a bathtub, you know, people stockpile almost like warehouse their, their products and then, and then the animals moved again, it might be put on a suitcase and then put on an airplane and then shipped from madagascar to you know another country to another country and then it and then it ends up in some person's place as a pet you know i'm giving you the example right now of 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 the plowshare tortoise from madagascar and so plowshare tortoises are critically endangered they live in one location in madagascar and they are trafficked for pets the people that are on the ground the kind of locals really don't make a lot of money the high values come at the other side of the supply chain. Um, And so that means sometimes that the crime is organized. So sometimes it's organized crime or it's just crime that's organized, right? There's like a logistics system, just the same way, you know, I ordered a new pair of headphones and I ordered them online. They came from some physical warehouse, showed up at my doorstep. There's many, many, many different people involved. Many, many people are motivated by different reasons, we sometimes oversimplify the problem and say, oh, well, these people need money, and so that's why we're doing it. But it's a lot more complicated than that, right? And so understanding the the human geography, the the governance, the the social dimensions, the religion, the culture, uh, the, the human ge- geography really matters here.
1: Well, let's focus at first on the local communities. Is there a benefit to participate in this activity? Is there a necessity or Um, something that's sort of driving this engagement, and then what's the role of communities for preventing and and turning around these types of activities once they're underway?
0: So maybe I'll answer your question with a story um, of some of the research that I'm conducting in Mexico. Um, And I'm working in a particular province where there are uh, fishing cooperatives, and so these fishing cooperatives formed for other fish and they have a system of working with each other and they kind of have their own little territories and these are fishers that have been you know doing this practice for a really long time and then there became a opportunity to fill the sea cucumber market and sea cucumbers are food right so you can dry them or freeze them and and eat them and so these fishers started fishing sea cucumbers and the sea cucumbers were so profitable that all these outside people started coming in from land and by sea to start and, and then there was overfishing and then there was illegal fishing um and so these fishing cooperatives actually reached out to me and a colleague of mine and they said you know what we're doing isn't working you know are there any new tools that we could be thinking about and so we've been working with five different fishing cooperatives we did some training on ways to think about conservation criminology. We um, asked them to help us, uh, like, engage in some citizen science, some you know, geospatial data collection, um, and then we said, "Here's a here's a micro grant. Here's like a thousand U.S. dollars. What would be a way that you could use this data in your local context to to to, to help solve this problem of illegal fishing?" Right, because. Illegal fishing brings outsiders, it brings some violence, um, it brings um, unwanted attention from law enforcement authorities, etc. Et um, and so it's been really neat to see the communities leverage their own capacity and their own built capacity to um, create and implement these projects to try to conserve sea cucumbers and cons- conserve the fishery. Um, so that the the, the illegal fishing uh, doesn't doesn't essentially drive that particular fish stock extinct. So those those communities are are highly motivated, and they also have all this amazing local knowledge uh, that I certainly don't have. So, you know, in collaborating with these communities and asking questions and 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 having established relationships, I think we've really been able to help them transform their data landscape into something that's a little bit more preventative also as as, instead of just being like reactive like how can you prevent illegal fishing from happening in the first place as opposed to only responding to it after it happens
1: what is the role of authoritative organizations to enforce the law at different levels of government including uh, internationally
0: I like thinking about communities in in different ways, right? Like at different scales, right? So you can have a fishing cooperative, you know, that maybe is part of one town and there's that community. And then there could be a community of fishing cooperatives with a with a with an elected leader, and that elected leader might have to communicate with a federal fishing agency. And this can be really challenging because a lot of these nature crime issues cross many jurisdictions, and so you might have a Customs authority interacting with a fisheries authority, um, interacting with a um, organized crime, you know, authority, um, all in one country, and then think about like a transnational issue, right? So, the United States, for example, is a transshipment um, country for sea cucumbers. So, really, what that means is that sea cucumbers move from Mexico through the United States onto their final destination. Um, so that means that there are authorities in the United States that are involved in this, whether or not they wanna be, right? Because the United States is the middle person, if you will. But then sometimes you have law enforcement authorities or conservation organizations, which are two different kinds of communities, and they're on other sides of the Pacific Ocean, or they're on other sides of the Atlantic Ocean, um, and they're still trying to coordinate with each other.
1: So so given the sort of the local nuances of, of, of these nature crimes scaling to this international criminality uh, topic how is it possible to follow through with actually prosecuting these crimes when when these uh, organizations are caught
0: my my role in all of this is science so uh, I'm not a, I'm not a criminal justice professional or, or a law enforcement professional but I have the the good fortune to sort of interact with a lot of them and it's really challenging it's a slow role right it happens. Three, you know, three years it takes, maybe, you know it takes a lot of time to build evidence and collect evidence and make these connections. Some of the work that I've been doing involves uh, geospatial information standards, right? So you may have a uh, an elephant ivory tusk from one country, the geospatial information associated with where you find that dead elephant or where you seize that ivory. And how does that evidence link then to um, cell phone communications? And then how does that cell phone communication link to social media accounts and um, online payments and online communications? And is it even illegal what's happening here? Right. So sometimes we think that these things are immoral. Um, and, and that's that's okay, but is it actually illegal? And then what's the illegal, what's what's the law that's been broken? So it's interesting sometimes for people, well, like when I'm talking to my dad, he's like, I had no idea, you know. It's there's money laundering involved and there's 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 mail fraud involved, you know, it's not just it's not just like crimes against animals like it's not just an animal welfare dimension. So I think it takes an amazing amount of coordination um, across countries to not only respond to offenders, but then also to try to prevent these crimes from happening in the first place.
1: So when the law is enforced and someone is caught participating uh, in these activities, uh, let's say at the community level, what's the actual impact?
0: I I was able to conduct a focus group with a group of women whose husbands, sons or brothers were all in jail for poaching and trafficking. Right, So there was a transnational movement of of products. So it was rhino horn and or um, elephant ivory. And so you had these women that if they were married they had a two-income family and now they're down to a one-income family and so there are these economic burdens there's also sometimes mental health challenges you know the rangers are away from their families sometimes the rangers get shot at sometimes the rangers kill people and so the impacts can be really really widely felt so there's like these direct impacts but then also there's indirect impacts right so you know, you have children who then, you know, have a have a single income family or, you know, a single parent, you know, as opposed to two parents. And then you have um, not enough wildlife around for fishing or, you know, not enough fish around for fishing or not enough trees uh, around to build a new house when a really strong cyclone comes by and blows things over. What I also learned from that focus group with the the women in Zambia is that they had a lot of ideas and they really felt like just simply just that no one was even asking. And so it wasn't that they were unfamiliar with the issue. I mean, they had a really sophisticated knowledge of the data landscape, it's just that no one ever asks, right? And so for those of us that are trying to work on building the knowledge base to try to resolve these issues and like pull different pieces of information together for like location intelligence, like we're totally not even asking certain people what they think, which is not right.
1: Are there new approaches to sort of putting these families back together, frankly, that have been um, sort of they've participated in this activity, they've been through uh, some type of justice process. Um, how can they um, help prevent future nature crimes?
0: Yeah, so I I appreciate this idea of thinking about like responses to nature crime, but then also how do we prevent it right so once the tree is cut it's cut once the sea cucumber is out. You know, and and starting to be boiled, uh, you know it's over, which is totally different than like my cell phone right so if my cell phone is stolen I have backed up my data and it's replaceable right it's 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 expensive and it's. It's unfortunate, but it's replaceable, right? When we're talking about natural resources, there's no plan. There's there's no like backup plan, and so that's why this idea of like prevention and 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 justice is, I think, really important to be thinking about. So there's a, a few of us now that are starting to, you know, in the scientific community, collaborate with prosecutors and um, you know law enforcement officers to think about, well, what about what about borrowing more from criminology and things that they use, like restorative justice? You know, how do you help bring justice to a tree that's been cut. I've been working with um, some of my graduate students and then some of my undergraduate students through some National Science Foundation uh, support that we have to engage with convicted offenders and having them help us do a better job understanding the data landscape. And so how can offenders help scientists better understand the data landscape, again, so that we can see the problem differently, see different solutions, and then also find different solution implementers. So that's really new. Um, And what I can share with you is that it's been really well received by the offenders and also it's not a replacement for anything (laughs) it would be an add-on and i think the the idea with the add-on is to prevent any kind of negative future impacts right it's this idea of preventing preventing something bad from happening in the future
1: dr gore as always it's been such an education to speak with you thank you so much for joining us
0: it is so fun to chat with you thank you so much for the opportunity it's just it's always a pleasure on my end too Thank you for listening to the ESRI and the Science of Our podcast, and thanks to Meredith Gore for explaining how data and technology are combining to curb nature crime. If you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with a colleague.